Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Tim Urban. He's one of the internet's most popular writers and the founder of Wait But Why. When we look to our past, many of us believe that we could have behaved differently, perhaps that we should have behaved differently. Yet, when we look to the future, we believe that our path is locked in and genuine change is difficult. This couldn't be more backward, and Tim explains it in a number of obvious face-palm-inducing ways today. Expect to learn what Tim thinks about Elon's takeover of Twitter, why leisure time when you're not supposed to be having leisure time is a curse, why you should absolutely not marry the wrong person, Tim's best advice for dealing with procrastination, how he copes with criticism from strangers and peers, how to avoid dwelling on decisions that you didn't make, and much more. Tim is an absolute legend, and he's got a book that's coming out in a few months, so he should be back on for that. Uh, if you are not familiar with his writing, I highly, highly recommend you go and check out Wait But Why. It's super accessible, really funny. There's tons of cute little illustrations that really drive the point home. And uh, yeah, the, the guy is a genuinely original thinker. Very, very glad to have had him on today. Also, over the next month, I've got the most intense schedule of huge name guests that I think I've ever had on the show. So if you want to make sure that you don't miss those episodes when they go up, go and press subscribe. It supports the show and it makes me happy and it ensures that you don't miss these episodes when they go up. Thank you. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tim Urban. I just learned about the mutual combat law in Texas. Have you heard of this? No. Dude, mutual combat is legal in Texas. To be legal, the fight must be overseen by a police officer. The police officer is supposed to act as a referee by breaking up the fight when an obvious victor has emerged. Consent to fight in Texas doesn't even need to be explicitly stated if someone's words and actions make it clear that they want to fight. This is considered consent under the statute. And considering that Texas law allows people to legally carry swords in public, it's hardly surprising that consensual fistfights are legal. That's a remnant of uh, what we would call honor culture. What's honor culture? Honor culture is um, is a conflict resolution culture uh, that exists in lots of places of the world today. In the Middle East, for example, it's very common, and 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 really, it exists tends to exist in places where people don't fully um, trust the law, um, and. You know, uh, so the more lawless the place, you know, that's why, you know, obviously, uh, often in slums or in places where it feels very lawless, you'll end up with a very strong honor culture. And honor culture says that uh, it's defined by real sensitivity to slights, so thin skin. So if someone insults you, can't just let that roll off your back. You got to respond and you respond with direct confrontation. You don't go to the authorities. You respond by finding. So in other words, if you insult me, you know, we'll also have a, we have to have a duel to, you know, I have to, you, you've to restore my reputation. Uh, you have, you know, you've, you've, you've made, um, 
uh, you know, you've, you've tarnished my reputation. I need to restore it. And I need to preserve my reputation as someone who, uh, can't be just, you know, you can't just walk over me. So that's honor culture. That's why in honor culture, you see a lot of fights, a lot of duels. Um, and the wild west was very honor culture ish. Um, you'll note it, you'll see it though in a bar of, you know, a bar, a Boston bar of high schoolers where I used to sometimes be, you know, you set someone bumps into you and you, you, you know, you're supposed to fight them, you know, it's, it's, um, so that's honor culture. And, and, um, and I say it's a remnant because in play in the U S today, it's much less common than it used to be. It's been replaced by dignity culture in most of the, you know, which is what happens in, uh, places where people do trust the law is eventually it often, um, it will uh, morph slowly into dignity culture, which is much thicker skin. It means it's it's you know sticks and stones may break my bones, but words or names will never hurt me. Um, so that's if you've been he hearing that as a kid, you were raised with dignity culture, which is you know let it roll off your back. It's ignore them. It's not your problem. That's a them problem. But if the thing if, if something gets so bad, um, you know if someone's really hassling you, it doesn't say you should be a pushover to it. But it doesn't say go fight them ever. It says go to the, go to the authorities. So honor culture is thin skin, and you and you go direct confrontation. Dignity culture is thick skin, but when it gets a certain level, you go to the authorities. It's like procedural. Well, the two places that this is still legal in America are Washington D.C. and Texas. That's and funny. I don't know it's, what it says about those two places. I mean, there's also like you know, I, I you hear about like some of the southern states like outlawing lynching or slavery. Uh, like in like the last decade, you know, so a lot of times there's these really old, old like laws that are, you know, that seem like they're from an, from ancient history, but actually technically the legal code still. This sort of vestige of a time gone by. I learned yeah. as well that, um, you know, the house of Lords in the UK where the guys are going back and forth between each other and they're sat on those green benches and you've got the speaker of the house. The distance between those two benches is precisely the length of two swords at arm's length. So if a man was to hold it out, if somebody had, I don't know, scurried his good name and he was that he would they wouldn't be able to swing at each other and they wouldn't be able to hit each other. Yeah, I mean and 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 we we can laugh at it cuz it sounds insane, but if you lived in an honor culture time you would be like this. We all, we, I would too. You know, like if you lived in a time like that and someone insulted you, you would definitely want to go fight them. And that's why duels happen. I mean, this is, you know, in early US, I mean, people would go and shoot each other. One would often die because of an insult, which is so foreign to people living in a dignity culture today. Yeah. One of the conversations that I've seen you have a good bit recently is about the shortness of life. And given the fact that life is pretty short, how do you remind yourself not to waste it? Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing I've th been thinking a lot about is when you, you know, so, you know, sometimes I will, it, it, if I just sit and, you know, hang out at my apartment and work over the weekend or just do, you know, maybe I'll go grab a meal with someone and hang around. Maybe it's raining and I watch TV, you know, the weekend flies. It's like, it was Friday and like, now it's Sunday night and like nothing happened. It just felt like a second versus sometimes you take a weekend trip, you go somewhere really interesting or and you, you, you fly somewhere, you know, or you take a train somewhere or, and you go and you explore a new place or you're with a whole new people. You're at a wedding, right? And all this stuff is happening. 
um, or even just you're you're being really adventurous in your own you know city or whatever, and you're actually going out and trying a bunch of different things. Um, you by the time Sunday night hits and you're back home, it feels like an eternity since Friday afternoon. I mean, it's like you can't believe it's only been two days. Think about how much happened in the last two days. And genuinely, it's like who cares if the time between Friday and Sunday was the same in both cases? Your experience of the second thing felt much longer, which to me is what all that matters is your subjective experience is all that your actual reality. So you actually in, in, in you lived more. You actually lived more time. If it felt like forever, it means that you actually lived a lot more in those two days. So that one of the ways to think about the shortness of life is yes, the actual time is variable is 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 fairly constant, right? We all have you know at, at most you know eighty to a hundred years, you know, and uh, and that's if we're lucky, and you know we can't really do much beyond that. But someone who lives full of novel experiences and they're always trying new things and they keep it interesting and they're they're they 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 really have you know they live their lives richly. I feel like they actually live like three three times the amount of subjective time that someone who, you know, who kind of just sticks to their routine, doesn't try anything new. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, novelty is, is, is a way to kind of triple your lifespan in a way. So that's one of the ways I think about, um, I, I try to, this is not quite your answer. I mean, uh, your question, which was, you know, how do I remind myself, but, you know, I remind myself with, um, I have, I make visuals about this all the time to try to remind myself and others. Um, I, I remember certain things stick in my head. I was like, I think I was like 38 or something uh, a couple years ago. And I was in the car with my grandmother who was 94. And she said, um, I, I said, wow, you know, she just turned 94. And I said, man, 94. And she was like, yep. And I was like, wow. I was like, one day far, you know, long from now, hopefully I'll be there too. And she goes, it's tomorrow. And it just hit me. She was just like, she was like, <laughs> it's tomorrow. In other words, this seems to me, especially since, you know, when I think about my childhood, it seems like forever ago, but time moves subjectively quicker as you go. And so I get what she was saying, which is that it probably, when she looks at me, you know, in my late thirties, she's not thinking, oh, that was ages ago. She's probably thinking it feels like not very long ago. I was right there. And now suddenly I'm here. So I, that stuck with me and I'm like, damn it. You know, I'm like, I, I you know, very quickly my, I'm going to go from someone who's around 40 to who's someone who's around 60. That's going to happen much quicker than 20 to 40 happened. It's going to happen and it's going to feel like there's going to be certain friends I see this year that aren't very close friends that I'm gonna, the next time I'm going to see them, we're going to both be 60 and it's going to feel like, oh, when, we, you know, it's been a while. When's the, it's not going to feel like it's been ages. It's going to feel like, oh, when's the last time we saw each other? You know, and realize it was when we were 40. So anyway, I do a lot of this thinking to try to um, – to try to not, you know, look back later and say, oh, man, I just like I let the time fly without appreciating it or thinking about it or like trying to maximize it and whatever. I think you're right to look at what are the tools that I can use in order to slow down the passage of time subjectively. And like talking about reminding yourself of the shortness of life. Really, it doesn't make any it, there's no point in thinking about that unless it impacts the way that you move forward in life in any case. So going with a tactics first or a strategy first perspective, like how you answered it is the right way to go about it, I think. And yeah, absolutely. Novelty and intensity seem to be the two things that kind of slow down our subjective experience of the time that we're going through. Conversely, something that is routine means that our brain doesn't need to forge any new memory units. I always use this example of I went to Africa for the first time about four years ago. And the after we got off a plane and then got on a safari, 
truck and then we went on this little boat and then we finally got there and this guy met us at the front morris i don't think it was his actual name but morris who was one of the guys in the bewindy impenetrable forest huts that we were staying in i remember the shoes he was wearing i remember the book on ornithology from birds that he had in his hand i remember the sound when he walked down the muddy track that we were going along dude i've had the same credit card for four years and i can't remember the 16 digit number across the front of it but i recall this endless litany of totally arbitrary things because it was just full on novelty and intensity i can hear gorillas in the jungle behind him there's the sound of birds there's different smells i've been traveling for 24 hours like that was maximizing the time and yeah i think it it seems like we have a similar view of a life well lived which is one in retrospect you're glad that you lived you look back and it seems to be quite rich yeah yeah i mean it's it's for, at least for me, I mean, that's one of the, you know, objective measures, uh, one of the measures that seems to me um, like a, like a, a very valid metric for uh, that, that you want to go up on, which is just experiences. Um, and, you know, I don't know, some people could argue why, you know, what's why, why is that better than having a content being content in your routine and just being with that and. And I don't think there's necessarily a good reason, but I think the fact that it slows down time alone is a, is a good reason. And I, then I happen to be a curious person who loves new experiences. Not that I do it all the time. You know, that's why I, sometimes I'm kicking myself for why, you know, when I go do something interesting, I think, why don't I do this every, you know, weekend? And and to be clear, you know, obviously traveling somewhere with gorillas. I mean, you're going to, that's going to be a great way to do this, right? But it, it doesn't have to be, so it, it, it's much easier, it can be much easier than that. You can literally go to like, you know, I don't know, a hardware store and get some supplies and try a new hobby, try building something. You can go get a new musical instrument and try learning something. You can go to a museum you've never gone to in your city. You can go to a, you know, travel, you know, make a little destination, you know, that's a 45 minute drive away to this restaurant. You've heard, there's so many ways you can just do something that's special, that's different. That's like, you suddenly it lights up this child in you, this like adventurous side in you. And, um, and it's so easy, this whole other part of us that just wants to resist effort. So, you know, that we're always, you know, if that side has too much power in our head, it's very short term. It's in this exact moment. Ah, I just rather hang around. The house. I don't want to go do, deal with the whole thing today. You know, uh, some other day. And I think you have to kind of um, that side isn't very wise and often makes some very short term decisions that don't serve you very well. So, yeah, I think it's, it's just being aware is helpful. We often mistake a comfortable activity for an enjoyable one. Yeah. You know, the the couch always just seems seductive and going out to do a salsa class on a cold Wednesday evening in November or something is like, oh God, I know I said I'd go and do salsa, but no, like tomorrow, what would you tomorrow look back and be glad that you did? Another, I did, I, I saw this uh, article that looked at people's per, um, subjective perceptions of time when using their phones. And basically what you're doing when you use your phone is speed running life. Mm-hmm. Like you're, yep. you're, it's a speed running strat for life. It is totally. fucking terrifying. If if I if I lie, you know, I wake up in the morning and just say it's you know eight fifteen, and the obvious thing to do, the wise thing to do, um, is to get out of bed, get in the shower, don't touch the phone, just like let your mind percolate and get on with your day. You know, you know, start doing. You know, if you're gonna, if you're not gonna get started on work, that's fine. But go take a walk, do something. You know, rich, something good for you. Um, you know, do some writing, just do something, you know, make, make a good breakfast. If instead what I often do is I'll pick up my phone and it is nine 30, like that, like an hour and 15 minutes passes and nothing happens. I mean, I text a little bit, I'm scrolling on Twitter a little, maybe I read a couple articles and it's just like, boom, there goes like a, there goes like 
10% of my day, <laughs> like 10% of my day is gone on like, and, and it's not like I was enjoying it the whole time. I'm sitting there all the whole time with a part of me in my head saying, get up. This isn't good. You know, that's what I call it the dark playground. When you're doing some leisure activity, you, big part of your head knows you're not supposed to be doing, you know, not, it's, it's anxiety riddled time. It's not fun. Um, so the phone is the ultimate, it's the opposite of like the novel experiences. Even if you're doing something novel on the phone, somehow it just sucks the time. It's framed in such a familiar environment, yes. isn't it? But I like what you said about comfort. I mean, I think sometimes it's almost inversely, inversely correlated with like, um, discomfort, both physical sometimes, like you said, you know, maybe you're going to go climbing or something, but, but even more just like emotional comfort of, you know, it's very emotionally comfortable to do exactly what you're used to doing with the exact people you're used to doing it with. Um, it's easy. You don't have, there's no challenging yourself, right? There's no stepping out of your comfort zone at all. And so, so often, even if, even if it's fun, often the really novel experiences can be uncomfortable. Not always, you know, sometimes you're just going doing some incredibly fun tourist activity and, um, or you're doing something you love that you haven't done in a long time. But, um, I think in, inviting discomfort is very important. Uh, it's, you know, so many of the things that I love now started off as me venturing into what seemed like an uncomfortable place once, um, realizing I like something, getting addicted to it, and now it's a regular feature of my life. Um, I, I, you know, I use the example like I used to just write blog posts, just text. Now um, my blog posts are all heavily illustrated with, you know, hand drawn stuff and you know stick figures and diagrams, and I just love putting visuals in. That didn't just happen, right? Like it, it was binary. It went from it, there was no drawings to there were drawings. And the, the 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 transition point was a day when I did something icky. I took a drawing tablet that I saw and I plugged it in. And I, was, and I, I didn't know exactly how to even whether I had the connector. Or do I get it in my computer? Will it is it compatible with my computer? What's the software? How do I get that? Do do I need software for this? Once it's done, how do I? get the thing onto my blog. This was earlier, you know, it wasn't as obvious. You can just obviously export something and upload it. So I was thinking, can I even get visuals onto this like primitive blog? This was back in, I think like uh, 20, you know, 2009, something like that. And so often I just, there's, there's a hundred things still right now in the queue for me that are, that are like that, where I'm like, I know I'd probably be good at it or I might be good at it and I'd like to try it. But it's just icky, so I haven't gotten over them. But that one I did. And because I did, I realized, oh, okay, suddenly the fee all that icky kind of like, I don't know how to do this. The ickiness went away. I was like, this isn't icky at all. You plug it in. You download this simple software. I, you know, you, you draw, you export, you upload. It's done. And from then on, I just it became a staple of what I do is I draw. And so, like, that's an example of something that is very comfortable for me now started out as me having to face discomfort. That's the step that most people, I think, struggle with. Uh, increasingly, when I when I first started the show, I was really, really interested in getting people from uh, really struggling to just getting off the ground. And that's still a conversation that I often think about, like, how is it that you just encourage someone to get past that very, very first piece of friction? But one, one of the things that we've referenced there is um, like a regret that I didn't spend the weekend in the most... Uh, exuberant, fantastical way that I could have done. And then also with this, people could look back on all of the opportunities that they've had to lean into discomfort to maybe develop a new skill that now, three years hence, they would have been capitalizing on or really competent in or, or loving it. How do you avoid dwelling on the decisions that we didn't make in the past? Yeah, I mean, I, so as as I tend to, I make visuals that help me and sometimes others um, 
like reframe because a lot of times what with the 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 time of visual is perfect for something like this is is not you know to make us believe something that's not true or like help us fool ourselves it's the opposite it's like there's a lot of our brain is not really a a rational truth machine it's not great at those things it can be okay at those things it's it's can you know but it's it's nature is to be very to make all these assumptions and to kind of have this to be in this kind of um groove about various lines of thinking that it's just natural for it to be in and they're often not mapped onto reality well so part of the reason i make the the life calendars and stuff is because one of the things our brain um thinks about or, or assumes is that time is infinite you know and again i know your rational brain doesn't think that but uh like i said you know if, if i see my friend a certain friend who i like but you know we're not best friends and i see maybe i see him once a year and we get we get dinner once a year and i think yeah this is great this is a friend in my life i think we when i leave that dinner i'm like yeah, we have hundreds, thousands more of these hangouts, you know, I mean, this, and it's like, no, uh, if, you know, maybe if, uh, it's, if the, if, if the one of us only lives till 78 and we're both 40 and we, you know, do this, maybe even slow down a little bit, maybe we've got 30 of these left, maybe 25. Wow. Right. And so our, my brain, our brains are not thinking that way. They, they don't realize that this is one of the 25 the hangouts I have forever with this person. Now, you know, look, you can go crazy if you're thinking about that. You don't want to be, you know, weird and emotional at your dinner with your friend all the time. But like to just A, to prioritize these things and B, to enjoy it when you're there, to actually try to like, you know, when you're with your family at Thanksgiving, uh, your whole family's there. Oh, my God. There, how many more of those do you have? Uh, who knows? Don't be on your phone, you know, like go an extra day. Don't rush out, you know, actually try to spend some time there. Do something novel with them. Don't just sit around, you know, watching the game, you know, open a game, play a game, try doing something interesting, you know, you know, start an interesting combo at dinner, whatever. So that's one example. Now you asked about, you know, a regret and how to kind of, you know, not let regret about the past consume you. Um, and so another visual I use, which is, uh, I think also helping us kind of see clearly through what is a natural delusion um, is it's I it's um, I I like I think of it as like my green tree um, uh, visual and um, uh, I think if if you Google like Tim Urban life paths. Dean will be able to put it up on the screen, okay. so okay. it'll be it'll be up on the screen at the moment. And for the people that oh, are listening, perfect. you Even can better. you okay. can give so, them a, a rough explanation. Perfect. So yeah. So basically, um, when we're looking into the past and regretting, which we all do, right? We all are on a huge tilt about a hundred things that didn't happen, or that we said that we shouldn't have said, or that we didn't do, that we should have done, or that we didn't do, you know, until it was too late or whatever. Um. And that's true. Those things are real. That's not, it's not that that's not true. Yeah. I mean, but, but, but we all have it. That's, there's no human that's going to get to adulthood and not have that. So first of all, it's not like I did something wrong that I have these regrets. Everyone has them, right? It's just, which ones are your, which ones do you happen to have? Okay. Um, and you can't do anything about those and you couldn't have, you know, avoided having them. So you shouldn't beat yourself up about it. And the question is like, how do you, 
proceed into the future to minimize regrets in the future because you can't avoid you're going to have some regrets in the future you know future you're going to have some regrets about stuff that you haven't yet made the mistake on and that's also inevitable but you can minimize these right you can get better at better you can have a better good decision to future regrettable decision ratio as you get older um and so the left side of this diagram is all the paths that you, that you the roads not taken the paths you 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 could have with different decisions some worse than your current life maybe and some better right so it's you know you, you also got lucky sometimes you you really made a good wise decision right so it's a mix or it's a mixed bag looking into the past but the implicit assumption when we get upset about those is that i could have i had agency back then i could have done something I, if i had just been a little bit wiser or a little bit gutsier you know, I could have had it differently, right? So that's this feeling of past agency we we feel. But then when we look into the future, I think we spend so much time looking at all those black lines that we then kind of think, well, but now this is just my life, right? So I made those decisions and I, you know, and here's where I ended up and this is just what happened. And now here's my life for better or worse. And this is the life I'm living, which is kind of an assumption that you're on a green path, which is the life you're living that just extends a singular green path into the future that you're stuck on. Like you're in a tunnel, you can't get out of it now. And that's just where you are. So that's exactly the opposite of the thinking you're doing when you're regretting the past, because you're not, you're suddenly removing all that agency, all that, oh, I could have done better. I should have, right? Which means you had you had the ability to when you look into the future it's as if you're like well but now it just i'm just beholden to fate i'm beholden to my previous decisions and that's where i'm stuck i'm handcuffed no you're not you have in 20 years you will look back and all of the black lines those are yet to happen you all they're all open to you currently so you have this big vast green tree stretching out into the future that will when you're 80 will be black lines like the ones you know behind you now you know, they'll be all close to you but at the moment they're bright green right and you have that agency and you can look back and instead of being upset about the regrets you can say these are my oh that's motivation and that's wisdom so i'm gonna what did i learn what are those regrets what did i wish i did differently amazing so now i can go and crush the green tree because of what i learned in the black tree so i love that visual because the delusion is that just like we think we have an infinite amount of time in somewhere in our heads, we also think that we uh, we don't have choices that that we're kind of uh, we're stuck where we are. And those are those two together are a dangerous recipe for complacency. It makes us think, well, you know, a I have all the time in the world, and b what's the point? Nothing's going to change anyway. It's the opposite. You have limited time, and it's totally in your hands. So if you can kind of use visuals like this, you can you can. It just can be super empowering and exciting to go and grab those green branches. That asymmetry of believing that we had degrees of freedom in the past, but we've got lock-in for the future is so funny. Uh, hang on a second. <laughs> I literally couldn't. No, I, I chose. I'm right here right now. Therefore, I didn't choose anything different in the past and worrying about it can't change it. And I have the opportunity to do as much as I want in the future. All of these different options are open to me. There's such a, uh, like a head bang against the wall realization when you totally. when you notice that you've been doing that obviously another another big piece of of change that's happened recently has been elon's takeover of twitter i know that you've spent a good bit of time studying him have you noticed anything interesting around the dynamic of the response to what elon's been doing have you have you observed anything that you thought was pretty novel or, or interesting yeah i mean i think um it's very early 
look, the way Elon tends to do stuff, and people forget sometimes this, if you know, if you, if you, that, you know, when SpaceX and Tesla started, it was, let's move, let's try stuff, let's build, build prototypes, let's make mistakes, right? And when you look in retrospect at a successful project and you see it started that way, it seems awesome. Wow. And they were just bold and they were making mistakes. And now look, it led to the success, right? We see it as just a purely good thing. But when it's happening in that moment before the success happens, when it's in doubt that it might not, you know, when, when, when the success may or may not happen, all of that raw experimentation and failure and bumbling failure early on looks not good. Doesn't look chaotic, good. out of control. Yeah. It, 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 you know, but if you take a big zoom out and you realize like this is how innovation often looks in the moment. Um, look at the take the your favorite songs in the world and go in a time machine back to when those songs are being written and look at the original verses and the original lyrics and the original chords and and the playing around on the piano that, that this composer did. And it's going to be a mess. Right. And it got to this beautiful place eventually. And so anyway, what I see is. Um, we're in month one still, basically month two, um, of Elon's Twitter. And so, uh, I see, um, a, I see a bunch of early attempts, so, you know, uh, some things that I think are, uh, um, uh, promising and some things that I think are, you know, pretty obvious mistakes. Um, and, um, so taking the long view, I'm like, great, good, go try shit, make mistakes, be you know, you know, innovative. Be ruthless um, about your standards for this thing, and like, see. So I, I I'm happy, but I, what I see is a ton of people spiking the football and being like, aha, see, like, oh, so and so, you know, you were, you know, you were pro free speech, and now you're doing this, or you're, you know, you were, you know, you're saying you wanted to be neutral, but now you're, doing it. I'm like, yeah, you know, like it's messy, and so, someone, what I mean, I think that mostly, it's, if you don't like him and you're rooting against the project, then this is a great, time, you know, it's fun, a fun shot in front. Yeah, uh, your dirty laundry. See yeah. things and act, you know, and and it seems like it's val, you know, validating your predictions. Um, no, not, not no, not that everything. I think no, not not that there are things that could have been done differently or better for sure. Um, but I don't know. For me, I would bet on I would bet on long term Twitter. I bet in three years, my guess. And again, it could be wrong. And Elon's the first to admit this. He always says that his projects all have a high percentage of failure, you know. And um, so but I would my guess would be that in three years, Twitter is doing leading the way in a lot of ways and that a lot of other social media companies are copying just like a bunch of rocket companies are now trying to learn how to land rockets, copying SpaceX to try to, you know, look at all the electric car companies now, or all the, all the big car companies who are cop, who copied Tesla essentially and started making electric cars after they did. So that's my guess. But, you know, no one's going to have a perfect track record. Maybe this is an area, this is going to be one of Elon's big failures. Maybe he'll try it. It'll turn into a disaster. Maybe social media is unsalvageable. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put all my money down on it, you know, but I, but I would say if I had to bet on, you know, that Twitter being a big success story, I would give it more than a 50% shot of that. It seems like there might be an element here that most of the stuff that happens in engineering companies, it seems like Elon is taking a more sort of engineering approach, even when it comes to the staff base. I think he sent out an email recently that basically warned everybody that was working there, there are going to be some changes. You are going to have to work a lot harder than you're used to. If you don't like this, then feel free to leave. Um, 
most of this stuff, it seems like, would be done in relative privacy. You know, the stories coming out of Tesla, you know, it's like a leaked memo from half a decade ago or whatever that we see see now. That's the sort of stuff that we see. Whereas pretty much everything that's happening at Twitter is practicing in public. Everything seems to be, it's basically a a total glass door policy, not by design necessarily, although I'm sure that Elon is thinking to himself, anything that I decide to put out on the local company intranet needs to be visible to the press and it needs to be acceptable by the press because it's not going to stay private. But there is definitely like a more voyeuristic sense of the internal um, iterations of what's going on within that company than there certainly were. I I didn't know what what SpaceX's first 20 versions of the rocket looked like, but I know what Twitter blew and all of the debates about what's going on online. And everybody somehow feels like they're invested and they've got a say in how Elon should be running this company. But no one thought that when it came to Falcon 9 rocket design. Of course. I also saw an interview with Joe Lonsdale the other day, and he made a, a funny point, which he was like, you know, when, when Elon first started getting into rockets and cars, they said, what? The Internet guy can't make rockets and cars. These don't happen in Silicon Valley. Now people are saying the rocket and cars guy can't do, do Internet. I mean, and it's just kind of like it's it's that um, this is assuming that, um, you know, success has to be you know, specialized. But I think if you look at what are the roots of what makes someone successful in any industry, they're often the same. It's, you know, um, being able to recruit the right people, um, having a clear goal, being able to reason from first principles and innovate. And sometimes in the direct conflict of conventional wisdom, um, being ruthless and, you know, persistent over many years. Um, and so, I mean, it's just, it's just, I, I think none of this is, you know, uh, I'll say rocket science, but SpaceX is. But <laughs> none, none of this is um, is 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 you know specialized to one industry or another. If you apply those principles in any industry, again, you're not the CEO isn't going to be doing all. You're going to hire expertise, so you're going to get the different expertise you need that you don't have. But like those, the same principles apply. Um, and like as far as you know, um, him saying you have to be hardcore and like work extra hours. I think it's totally valid to say this is that's toxic, that's bad, that's not a good way to have a company, that's not a good way to treat employees. That's that's a totally valid view, but it's also a free market, and so I think you know um, I think that um, uh, it's what's cool about it is he can do that, and he'll attract the kind of people that are workaholics. And that just are they would love to go to a place where everyone is hardcore, right? Think about like are those same people criticizing people who want to play in the NFL? Do you think the NFL has chill work hours? It's the most hardcore, round the year, round the clock, demanding, punishing activity, right? Are those people saying, you know, uh, the NFL is toxic for having all this off-season practice? Um, you know, no. Uh, the, the, you know, how about a tireless activist who wants to go work on a presidential campaign and is working round the clock? Are they criticizing those people and saying, you know, criticizing the campaign for wow, you're, you want your you want your people to work on weekends? No, it's just these are there's certain things that are hardcore in life and military, right? I mean, there's certain things, and, and Elon's basically saying this is my my companies are like the military and the NFL and the political campaign. That's just what we're like, and um, it's not for everyone. And we, it's going to filter out the people who don't want that. They can go get a different job and the people who do like it. So I just, I, I, again, you can say this is bad. That's a totally valid. Just like you can say it's unhealthy to join the military or to play in the NFL and you shouldn't do it. Totally valid opinion. But to say that he's doing something like, um, that something is like, like 
you know, wrong with this. Like they, it shouldn't be allowed to have something. It's just like, uh, it's like, you don't have to work there. It's like, you know, let, let him attract the people. I'm glad that hardcore people have companies like this to go work at because they'd be bored and understimulated in a normal company. So anyway, I think it's great. I think it's like bring some of that into Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley is known for being very cushy and, and, and which is great. They've raised the standards. They, they have a philosophy that, that employees should be treated really well and have great work-life balance. And I think that's awesome, right? But bring some, bring some ver- variety into Silicon Valley and say, you know, there's also some really hardcore companies here and you can go do that if you want. Um, and uh, let people choose. There is a contingent of people out there who want a hardcore life. Like, it, yeah, I, it, exactly. It, it seems to like, me that the, the people that are less passionate about the stuff that they do struggle to put themselves into the mindset of someone that's obsessive like if someone is absolutely right, applying obsessed- your values to everyone and saying everyone should have your particular values you know like um you, you know no one would it's like someone else could say it's 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 very popular in our society it's, it used to be popular i think in, in older america to be like work hard you know work as hard as you can you know that was that was you know a, a high value now that's looked down upon at least within like you know the kind of silicon valley type crowds that's right it's not uh, or on twitter it's that, that that's bad that's toxic right um but if someone said you know what i'm gonna i only want to work four days a week and i want to retire early if i can because i want to spend a ton of time with my family i want to i just want to dig into my family no one's like wow you're being too hardcore that's toxic it's like let people choose how they want to spend their one life and for some people nothing gets them going more than working hard with a team to build something they think is important and that's their fun and that's what they really enjoy and maybe it's their stage in their life maybe they're 25 and maybe when they're 40 they're not going to want to do that anymore but they're 25 and they do and so again i just like variety i like the idea i like i like having people get to choose what fits them the best how are you getting on with writing your book um well uh the book has been the the book has been done for a while but fact checking is a bitch uh <laughs> It's it's amazing because you know I, I do this and I think I'm being so rigorous you know I'm 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 researching everything really carefully and I'm checking what I'm doing and I'm, I'm making sure I'm and then you get a hardcore fact checker and I got two of them to go through and read your book and it's amazing what they can find problems with I mean and basically they're, they're you're paying them to act like the most pedantic annoying reader that will ever read the book someone who is trying to point out all the ways this book is wrong and you shouldn't trust this author because this is wrong. And it's, I'm basically saying be that person and tell me everything that they could possibly say. And that sounds great when you're hiring them, except when you're actually going through, my God, it's like, uh, cause it's sometimes it's just so, you know, like, well, this is technically, you know, not what every one of the, you know, you know, post-Marxists said, you know, there was this school and you're like, okay, shit, you know, I shouldn't say, you know, I shouldn't generalize. And, you know, or this isn't, you know, oh, actually, you know, it wasn't just this law, you know, that did this because actually it existed in common law in England before that. And um, and this is a, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God. And what you don't want to do is, you know, you, if you just do everything they say, you're going to end up with a boring, overly detailed book. So Caveats everywhere. Just put an end note in or cut a sentence. Someone's going to say, you know what, this is too nuanced to, it's going to be boring if I do it, do it justice. So I'm just going to cut it. Or I'm going to put it in an endnote, or I'm just going to change the wording and say, in part, it was developed by, you know, so I'm, I'm getting better at like trying to do the right, you know, go, go through these fact checks efficiently, but I'm just about done with that process. Um, and, and it's being copyedited by a different person. Um, and so it's in those final stages, which is way easier than when it's being done, but you know, it's a drag, it, it drags on and, uh, getting close to being finished here. 
As someone that's thought and written a good bit about procrastination in the past, is there anything that you learned from having such a single large project that you're working on for a good amount of time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I learned that uh, that a procrastinator who can learn how to, you know, be productive usually is relying on a lot of kind of like crutches. You know, one can be deadlines imposed by someone else, right? That's great. Or collaboration when you're accountable to someone else or um, uh, external pressure of different kind. Like when I was publishing blog posts every week, there was like this excitement of, you know, A, I owe this to readers because I told them it'd be out next week, but also like the excitement the adrenaline that comes from this is about to go live like in two days, you know, would, would actually be something that would help ease procrastination because it was like, you know, dopamine just from you know, working on the project. This long book project um, without any, you know, feedback as I'm going from readers and without any, you know, has been taken away a lot of those crutches. So it's been very difficult. So I've done um, I've learned throughout the pro I've actually this this has been a boot camp for me over the last few years of getting better at doing I built a bunch of new devices to help me. Like I will say, where would I want to be a week from today? Like, where do I want to, where, where, what could I do in the next seven days where a week from today, I'd be very happy with where I am in my progress. Okay. That's my goal. Now I'm going to tell two friends, this is my goal. And either I have to do this, do a certain thing every day, certain product or just something by the end of the week. And either way, I owe you and I have to Venmo you uh, each, you know, a good amount of money each day I fail. Something where it's small enough that you will do it. It won't like be so ridiculous that you just say, I can't, sorry. You have to actually be able to do it, but it hurts. You know, it's it's like, oh God, like, can't believe I just lost that money. So I'm trying to, you know, even finding the sweet spot with the amount of money and with like the rules and, and the, you know, um, and that works great if you can have an internal ethic where you say, I doesn't, you know, they'll, they won't know. I can lie about what I did and I will not lie about this. I will be honest. I will send it if I didn't truly do it. So that's, if you can't pull off that internal ethic and you find yourself lying, okay, that doesn't work. You have to come up with something there. So it's just what, what are the tools you can use to help push you forward when the ex normal external pressures are not. And that's been working on a bunch of those. Have some of your friends ended up profiting massively from yes. your attempt at writing a book? Yes, I've I've paid over a thousand dollars in different uh, over overall. Uh, uh, and and but I also got back some good solid cash from them because they're also creators and they've been also. Oh, it's like a cartel, a pooled yes. thing, like a Deadpool, but it's for yes. instead of who's dying, it's who's going to hit the word count. Yes, and it's so fun when they fail and I get money. I'm just like, <laughs> do you ever so, find yourself trying to distract them or trying to sabotage their? Oh thing? yeah, no, I'm 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 rooting against them fully. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, so I mean that 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 can be very helpful. Okay, here's another one I've been doing, which is that I just um, uh, if I'm left to my own devices, I will dick around for a big, huge chunk of the morning. The morning's when I'm energetic, I'm feeling social, it's when I want to text my friends or call or play with my dogs or just, I just feeling like, you know, I don't, work is such a bummer. I'm like, I have all this fun energy, but it's also the best time to work. The, the, the obvious like happy life and productive life is you get up, you're serious, you get your work done and you're free, you're off. That's the school mentality. You know, the bell rings at three, you're off for the day. Yes, saved by the bell, right? 
And to me, at least, I mean, I'm sure some people like to have their mornings free and then they, they hammer down in the afternoon. Not for me. It's not good because I because I, I don't end up enjoying my mornings. I'm in the dark playground. I have work looming over me. I'm self-loathing that I haven't done anything. So how do I get myself to actually, you know, not dick around till two and then work till dinner, but actually try to work till two and then take the time off? Um, uh, which kind of guarantees a productive day, you know, because if you, if you, if you mess around in the morning, you can end up actually just doing nothing that day. And that's really miserable. Um, and so, and also, you know, not drifting back with sleep. How do I guarantee that I'm like consistently working up early, working early for me is waking up at eight, you know, I'm, uh, no, that's not for most people. Um, up early and working. So for me, it was, um, I have, um, um, my colleague, Alicia, who's the Wapawai manager of lots of things. And she, and I've been working together for seven years. She knows exactly all of my fa faults and flaws, like better, probably better than anyone. She could write a book on them. And, um, and one of the, th but she's always, you know, willing to help in any way she can. And so I was like, you know, what would help is it's, I'm not going to sit at the computer and start dicking around the internet or texting. If someone's looking at my screen, that's embarrassing. A, you can see what I'm doing. It's weird. But B, it's also just like it's so shameful to procrastinate in front of someone. It's so like mortifying to like for someone to watch you. And I realized that like it's I don't need that big a push to do what I'm supposed to do. It's not like I'm you need to drag me kicking and screaming. I need it's like, you know, the old feeling of, oh, damn, class is starting. Damn, I, I had my free block. And it's not that I'm like screaming. It's just like, OK, uh, you know, it's Monday morning and you just got to do it. And Little you, nudge. you don't want to, but you have to. And so suddenly having someone looking at my screen is that it's like, ugh, I don't want to work. But are you saying that you've had you've had your manager, Alicia, just sit and watch over your shoulder like yes. a, a so supervisory person, parrot in person, but also she hurt her knee um, and was and was immobile for a while. And we were, you know, zooming and we realized that that works really well, too. I just go on to a Slack video. I share my screen, my whole screen. And she's working. It's not like she's sitting there staring, but at any given point, she might be looking at the screen. I don't know when that is. Oh, you've got a pan up, uh, a virtual panopticon going on. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> and, dude, and, that's and, a cool solution. And, and also, it, it doubles up as the purpose of you know she's a collaborator in all this stuff. She's very involved in the writing and the the uh, the editing. She was kind of my main editor, and so I'll often say to her, you know, like, do you like this new sentence or like? Do we think we need a source here? You know, maybe, you know, can you, can you like look into this, you know, make sure that I got that right. So it's, an, it's also just nice to be able to have someone there. You can kind of like bounce something off as you go. So, but you know, then sometimes I'm like, Ooh, as I'm writing, I think, Ooh, that's an interesting thought that would be a perfect tweet. What I just wrote would be a perfect tweet also. And my instinct is to go tweet. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to go tweet when someone's looking at my screen. That's a really embarrassing, like procrastinating thing to do right now. So I just won't go do it. But if I, if she weren't there, I would go to tweet, right? And you think, okay, that's five minutes, big deal. But it's not. I get stuck on Twitter now. Now I'm scrolling an hour later. So it's it's having someone that prevents that little, you know, quote, five-minute break that was actually an hour actually saves me an hour. And every day now at noon, I'm like, wow, I've gotten three hours of work done, real focused work done. And so anyway, these are examples of hacks that work for me. I think every procrastinator does it for different reasons, different weird psychological, emotional reasons. Um, and everyone needs to come up with solutions that can um, help them. And uh, there's no one-size-fits-all solution for this. I'm about to embark, it looks like, on writing a book. And that means that I'm, I've got particular voyeuristic interest in, in the tools that you've used. So yeah, I mean, all of those sound 
like they would work. Um, I had I had an idea that I came up with about a year ago called anxiety cost, and I think that's what you're referring to on the morning evening thing. So opportunity cost by doing a thing, you can't do another thing. You have the choice between the gym and the theme park. By going to the theme park, you can't go to the gym. Anxiety cost is the pain that you suffer mentally by thinking about as yet undone tasks that could be gotten rid of by just doing the tasks. So each day your to-do list begins and you, when you wake up on a morning, you have to meditate and walk the dog and answer emails. The longer that you take to walk the dog, meditate and answer emails, the more time you spend during that day thinking about the fact you haven't done those things. Whereas if you just do them, if you front load them towards the start of the day, you're just... Ah, bathing in this sort of glorious reflection. The same exact task can cause a variable amount of pain is what you're saying. You know, Correct. if you do it later, it causes you, and it's almost like a, a physical wound. Um, and it's like, there's something that's hurting you consistently. And then you do it. It's like, um, it's almost like, you know, I don't know. You're like, yeah, it's like, and you, and you can patch up the wound once you do it. And it's like, you can do the task and it takes a little bit of pain to do it, but there's no long sitting there in pain with the wound or you can, you know, so yeah, I think that's a very clever way to kind of think about it is, um, the, the, you know, actually think of that as a quantity, as a metric. Yeah. Postponing, postponing a task extends the pain, right? Right. Exactly. Look, you have to do the same pain either way at some point to do it, which is pain. You know, it's not like you should pretend that work is fun. It's, it's often not. Um, but you, that pain is, is, is a constant. It's going to happen either way. It's a certain amount and it can like drag on, like leaving this long wake of pain and it's, you know, or it can, uh, it can just be done without that wake. Yeah. You had a, uh, article where you were talking about the person that you're supposed to marry and you said, whatever you do, don't marry the wrong person. Given that young people at the moment are having less sex than ever and both children and marriage are being delayed more than ever. Plus, there's more optionality than ever. It kind of seems like a, an increasingly difficult decision to commit to a partner. Do you think this is a like a paradox of choice, Barry Schwartz thing going on? Like, what what, what do you think are some of the issues that's happening here? Oh man, so this is not something. This particular problem, I've I've, I've seen like the graphs and the stats on it, and um, and I've heard theories. I don't have much original thought here. I've I've heard theories about like. M- men are getting old, like there's more sexless men than there used to be. And the theories I've heard is not that they're, and and it's not happening for women as much, right? And so why? And the theories are that it's the apps create this marketplace where, you know, in the old days, um, a woman would, um, you know, two people would start dating who met in the office, right? Just say, or they met in the local bar, uh, or they met through a friend, right? And so this is kind of like your local world would provide you with mates and people within that world would match up just naturally. But now it's like a um, that same woman can go on to an app and select the most desirable guy that she can find. And maybe that person is more desirable to her than anyone in her little local world. And she can... And, and, and it's not like, oh, well, okay, but that guy's now taken because a lot of times there's casual sex, right? So you have that guy can have, you know, casual sex with 40 people in a year if he wants to, right? So all these women are, you know, sleeping with the smaller pool of super desirable guys and it's leaving a bunch of the guys um, in the local networks and local groups um, 
with no one. So this is the theory I've heard, which makes a ton of sense. It almost reminds me a little of like, um, you know, in the old days, if you were, you know, a good guitar player, you could play for your, you know, friends and you'd be the one you'd, you'd say, I'm going to put on a little concert tonight. And, you know, in your village, the 50 people would come listen and you had this gratification where you could provide this great gift you could give to people, your art, and other people would come listen. And that was it. And you had this, you you know, you had your dreams. Yeah, I'm playing guitar for people everywhere. Now, with the world of that we're in now, I mean, uh, you know, 100, 150 years later, you've got everyone can go and listen to the best guitarist in the world on Spotify. So, you know, you're not going to go and, you know, you're all going to go to Madison Square Garden to, to that concert and not going to go to your local thing as often. And so there's all these artists out there that have this gift to give that no one's taking because they're they're pretty good. Um, and no, no one needs why wow, there's no need for pretty good art anymore because you have world class art everywhere you look. It's so easy to great. So you have this small number of artists having huge numbers of fans and you have most artists having no fans. And that's in some ways cool because for consumer, it's great, right? Everyone has a world class entertainment for the artists. For most artists, it sucks. And, and it, you could, so that's it, it, to me, it's the same kind of concept that's happening with Dating, you know, and and again, I I don't know this from my own research. I know this from see, hearing other people say this theory, and um, but of course the out that the the um, it's the consequence. This is not good, right? It's sad. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are real mean to like incels. They're like, oh, you know, like these incel men. It's like, well, but that's sad. They're not. They're like they're lonely and they're not getting like a core human need that that in 50 years ago they the same people would have gotten and that leads to I think that's one of the things that makes people you know breeds anger and regret you know you know I think sexually frustrated countries are going to have more war probably you know not not you know I don't, I don't go overboard here but like so um I'm always rooting for like when I see a stat like that there's no like Schadenfreude or anything I'm always just like rooting for as many people to be like satisfied in their lives and sexually happy as possible because it's just going to, you know, even just selfishly, it's going to create a better society. Um, if, if the more people there are, so I, I don't know what the answer is there. Um, but in my general advice to someone, if they are having, you know, if they want to find a, a relationship and by the way, not everyone does. I think we should move towards a world where some people want to stay single their whole lives or some people want to date and not be married. And it should be much more fluid than it is right now, where it's like this binary thing. Like, why are you not yet married? You're supposed to be married from this age on, you know, and it's like, that's a little bit unnuanced, but, um, but I, I always say that, you know, it's like, if you wanted to, um, uh, if you wanted to find, um, so basically, if you want to get, you know, discover anything, you want to go try a bunch of things. You know, we talked about what Elon does. He tries a ton of things, sees what fails, sees what succeeds, right? You know, versus imagine if you're trying to create a strategy for a company and you sit there in the war room all day just talking and talking and discussing and trying to come up with the perfect, absolute perfect strategy before you execute and then you execute it. That's not going to be as successful as the company that says, let's come up with something, let's try it. Let's come up with something, let's try it. Let's learn, let's learn, let's get our hands dirty. So dating is the same. I feel like it's get out there and you rather than people sitting there and thinking about, you know, torturing themselves in their head, what do I want? What do I need in a partner? Go out there and go on 50 dates in the next year. And, you know, maybe one of your points originally was that it's hard to find dates. And I don't know if that's true, but I just think I always say, you know, like just go on lots of dates if you can. You also had a tweet that I really enjoyed asking, uh, looking at uh, an important life skill is recognizing the difference between criticism from people who don't care about you and don't root for you and criticism from those who do. The first is best ignored and the second warrants attention and reflection. One of the issues that you have online 
is that it's very difficult to work out somebody's intentions and whether or not they do have your best interests at heart. How do you deal with criticism in this way? So yeah, online, I mean, a few, it's, people say it's hard, but I can usually tell online, I think I have a pretty, first of all, most of the tweets that are like nasty towards me, right? And there's not too many. I mean, I feel like I'm lucky that I don't have too many like haters, but if I tweet something political, for example, or anything controversial, you're going to have hate, 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 um, hater tweets. The really nasty things I look and they almost never, they almost never follow me. So I'm like, these, they don't know who I am. I am some dehumanized shitbag guy over there. They, they don't have no idea who I am. They just – and so they, they they see someone they think they hate. They don't even know my – you don't even know what I think about – you know. but they see one tweet. They put me in a box. They demonize me, and I'm in – I don't – first of all, I don't take that personally. I'm like this person doesn't know me at all. It's like they're <clears> – the <throat> good thing to remember is that someone who's being real nasty to you online probably was – if you went and looked at their their – other tweets, they probably have been nasty to 12 other people that day in the same exact way. They're going around in this mood doing this. You're caught in a line of fire. So I, I don't give a shit about nastiness from someone who is not my follower because they don't know who I am. Now, when someone follows me, okay, I'm going to pay a little more attention. If they're being nasty though, you know, really personal, I'm like, this is not my kind of person. This is not my kind of person. Uh, I, don't want I don't make friends with this kind of person who makes a really kind of mean ad hominem attack really kind of like you know cynical sassy you know tone i'm like this isn't my kind of so i'm not going to worry too much about this kind of person right like um and so i also usually don't pay too much attention to it um then there's a comment from someone who does follow me and i can usually tell that this is someone who likes me and likes my stuff and they're disappointed in this particular tweet or they they usually resonate with me but they don't hear right and that's super interesting to me. Now it's pay attention. Sometimes that hurts. Those are the ones that might hurt because it's it's the person, you know, who, you know, you're thinking anything I do is going to create rando haters and is going to get nastiness from the really cynical kind of ad hominem type people out there. I, that, that's just inevitable. But but if, if, if I'm actually kind of like, you know, turning off people who normally like my stuff, that's interesting. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. Sometimes I want to challenge people who like my stuff too. And sometimes I just, there's just a disagreement, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong, but it definitely warrants paying attention to. And, and, and the nice thing about having a, a good size following is that it's not just one person. It's that I have a sample size. So if I get, you know, 400 comments very quickly, it's like, I can start to see, there seems to be a decent frequency here of people who actually seem like genuine part of like the Weibo community who really did, didn't like what I said or thinks that think I'm think I'm off on this, and that is uh, that means a ton to me and and I'll reflect on it, um, and I feel grateful that I get that you know a lot of you know I, you have to have a sizable following of people who do care about you and like your stuff to get that quality feedback from people who care about you, so anyway these are some like. Little things I, I I just kind of feel like I've developed a slight sixth sense for this over time. Um, and then, of course, in real life, it's much easier, you know, but it's hard to get constructive feedback from people who care about you in real life because most people who care about you don't want to hurt you. They don't want to hurt your feelings, right? They want to be nice to you. They want to compliment you. It's yeah. almost like uh, real life is the opposite of the internet. On the internet, it seems like people tune up their displeasure and decide to just throw shade or try and dunk on someone for no reason. And in the real world, it's difficult to get criticism out of most of the people that are around you because they're concerned about hurting your feelings or they want to come across well or they care about well you. in general the paradox is that the more 
online or in the real world, the more someone knows and cares about you, the less likely they are to give you criticism. And that's exactly the criticism that you do want. And the criticism that you're more likely to get is from people who are rooting against you, who a, don't, you know, often don't know you or anonymous. And that's the criticism that's not as valuable because, because if you think about what's motivated, the reason I say it, it, you should listen to the kind from people who care about you is not like that, you know, you can learn from any criticism, but the people who are, if you, if, especially in real life, if there's someone who you just think, you know, you know, deep down who some of the friends you think just, you know, whether it's a stage in their life, they are or just who they are or the kind of relationship you have with them. They're not rooting for you. They're happy when you fail. They're happy when you don't succeed. You know, it's a colleague at work or whatever. And the criticism from that person is just, you think about where it's coming from. Their goal, deep down, their their hope is that you do badly, that things work out worse for you, right? So they're giving you this criticism. Maybe they're doing it to boost how you feel about them. So they're going to give you good criticism so that you think they're a good person. But maybe they're literally doing something that they that they think is going to somehow hurt you. Like, why would you take help from someone? Why would you, you know, who is whose goal is to push you off the cliff? You know, you're on the cliff and someone wants to push you further down it. Why would you take their hand? It doesn't make any sense. So someone who does care about you and gives you criticism, especially given that it's not fun to give criticism to people you care about, right? So they're going out of their way. They're doing something that's hard for them that's not pleasant for them and you believe that their hope is that you do better, right? That is precious if you can get it. Uh, so, and, and look, it's, it's some of the nicest people I know, they're great at, at a lot of things. They're not gonna be good at giving criticism because they're too nice. And that, that those are some of the best people I know, right? And that's like one of their great qualities is that they're nice, but that happens to, to mean they're not gonna be great for criticism. There are certain of your friends who are in that sweet spot where they're good friends, they care about you, they're rooting for you, and they also are not shy, they're open, maybe they do it as a, you know, in a humor, humorous way, or maybe they're just confrontational. And you really gotta treasure those, those, what those people can do because, uh, and seek it out from them. I mean, you know, it's, it's really, really valuable. That's a really interesting point to think about how you curate your group of friends to not just be yes people that tell you what you want to hear, because it's actually rarer to find a friend who is both in the caring but critically able camp than it is to find someone who's caring and just comforting and tells you what you want to hear. Sometimes it's the people who care most about you. I mean, in some ways, if you're, you know, if you're dating someone that's not good for you and everyone knows it, right? The nice friend who says, yeah, you know, I love them. Good. It's going great. Oh, it's going good. Good. You know, it's not, that's not their shining moment is your friend right there. You know, they're not actually, you know, they're, they're in their head thinking, oh, this is bad, but like, I want them to feel good in this moment. That's a little bit almost like of a selfish act um, versus the person who will kind of say, you sure it's good? Like, I don't know, or I'm a little worried about, you know, or, 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 you know, if you're doing um a, you know, if if um if, if you're if you're annoying everyone at a party or somewhere, you're 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 too drunk or something, a friend who will like kindly tell you, you know, you know, the next day maybe you don't want to, you know, that person's doing something unpleasant to help you versus everyone else who's kind of thinking it's not my problem, it's, you know, uh, so I'm just gonna be nice. Because the the critic is paying a price personally in order to be able to advise you to become better, so yeah, they're I mean, actually they, paying they, more. They care about you so much that they'll go and actually tell you versus. If it's, you know, if, uh, if you cared less, why you wouldn't go through that? You'd think, you know, it's, I'll, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, especially, you know, we're really fragile about, you know, artists and creators and entrepreneurs and these people who create stuff, they can be very fragile, their egos, their self-esteem, their self-worth. 
And so when you know when you're making something new and you're you know trying to be bold, um, you really want to specifically seek out because there's again there's the person who's always going to say that's great, I love your song, even if they hate it, right? And that person's you know again they're nice, but they're actually not helping you very much, and they can lead you to they can kind of you know you can be going down a bad path and they'll just let you go. Um, and then there's the person who's rooting against you. You got to be very careful because that person will try to hurt you, even if it's subconscious. They'll try to hurt your confidence, you know. And if it's good, they'll whatever. And then, but it's like you know. To find that person who will just be honest with you um, about how you're, you know, you know what, what you're working on is just it's, it's yeah it's it's hard to find. Friendships are a minefield, man. Look, Tim, let's bring this one home. Uh, wait, but why on absolutely everything? Have you got any idea when your worst, harshest critic, fact checker people are going to be finished? Have you got anything close to a release date? Yeah, it should be early February. Oh, dude. How excited are you for that? Very. Then I have to turn around immediately and work on another book. So, <laughs> My friend Douglas Murray says that once the book is published, that's when the real work begins. So you're going to be doing a, a double job for a little while. Yeah, that's okay. I'll just be happy to have one under my belt. All right, man. Dude, I appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on.